Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 128 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be interviewing Chris Williams, co-director of the new Disney film Big Hero 6, about a team of young science nerds who use their inventions to become superheroes and battle a mysterious villain armed with swarms of robots. For our full review of the movie, check out our previous show, episode 127. And now, here's our interview with Chris Williams. All right, so we're here with Chris Williams. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, and so your new movie is called Big Hero 6. So just how did this project first get started? Uh, well, I should say that um, uh, there were actually two directors on the movie. I'm one of them, and uh, Don Hall was the other. And uh, it really began with, um, with Don and, and his, his passion for the superhero genre. Um, it's something that, that really spoke to him as a kid. He grew up loving superhero stories and reading comic books. And, and he, of course, also loved um, uh, animation. And that's what brought him to Disney. And uh, he was at a point where he was coming off of directing Winnie the Pooh. And he expressed to our boss, John Lasseter, um, how, how much he loved to work in that genre. And at the same time, uh, try to defy people's expectations of what you might do with that genre. And John is someone who is very passionate about passion. And when he sees that people are excited about something, um, that gets him really revved up. And so he asked uh, Don to go off and explore and see what he could find. And Don sort of went on a on a little journey, and he found this original property, Marvel property, called Big Hero 6. And uh, it was, you know, obviously on the a bit more obscure side. And, uh, but um, he, uh, he pitched it along with some other things as a possible thing to explore. And I think for all of us, he pitched it to the other directors uh, at Disney Feature Animation and pitched it to John as well. And, I, and it was, you know, at that point, you know, when we're starting out, this is now about three and a half years ago. Um, you don't pitch an in-depth plot, you know, you don't get into the minutia. I uh, just pitched a broad overview of the emotional potential for the film. And he talked about the idea of, of a young protagonist who uh, loses his brother, but is left with his older brother's creation, this robot Baymax, who would become his surrogate older brother. Uh, and he really sort of focused on that, and it got everybody really uh, engaged, and everybody really saw the emotional potential for the film. And uh, so at that point, John greenlit the, 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 the film, and we all got really excited about it. And the last three and a half years has really been about uh, this pursuit, this attempt to uh, realize the emotional potential that Don laid out uh, three and a half years ago. Uh, as far as myself, um, I came on the show about a year and a half ago uh, as a storyboard artist. And I've been on it for a few months when Don asked me to join him as uh, the co-director. Uh, at which point we were directing together and uh, he was in the very similar situation to the one that I was in when I was directing Bolt where I got a certain ways down the line and realized um, I just couldn't be in enough places. And at that point I reached out to Byron Howard um, who had been uh, storyboarding on the film. Uh, it was very much, you know, a, a powerhouse uh, story artist and, and someone who was, uh, you know, along for the journey. And so it was a great transition for him to come and join me as co-director. So, I mean, do you remember specifically at what point in the project you, you first heard of, you, you were first introduced to the Big Hero 6 and sort of what your first impressions of it were? Oh, well, 
Um, the, uh, the, it's when Don brought it to our attention that is three and a half years ago. Um, I'd never heard of it before then. Um, I think because it was a little known property, um, we had a lot of flexibility. People were, we knew the audience wasn't going to come with a preconceived notion of, of what this movie should be or, or what these characters should be. Um, and so we weren't encumbered by that. And, and we knew we were going to take a, a lot of liberties and, and really create something fairly new. And, uh, and so it was, it was nice to not have to, you know, be too beholding to people's pre-existing ideas. Right. I mean, I haven't read the comic books, but just doing a little bit of research, it seems like, as you say, that, uh, that there are a lot of changes from the comic books. Could you just talk about what some of the, like, like sort of for people who haven't read the comics, kind of what are they a little bit more like and what were some of those big changes that you made? Well, and, and I should say, I'm, I'm not even an expert on the original comic. I sort of took a glancing look at them, but at the point where I joined the show, I almost thought, it'd be better for me to be an outsider from the original source material. So I'm, I'm not even that familiar with it. Um, Don is more familiar with the, you know, the ins and outs of, of the original comic. Um, and, uh, but you know, one of the, probably the biggest change is the character of Baymax himself. Um, the idea of him being, you know, just, he's physically very different. He is a robot um, and, and not able to transform into lots of different things. And the idea of him being a nurse robot um, created by a hero's brother it was all new stuff um, that was uh, there to serve our story. And so, where did that? Where did your concept of Baymax come from? This, the sort of friendly, inflatable robot. Were there any uh, influences on that? Um, I, I really love, uh, I love Baymax, and I love that kind of character that where you really are working with absolute purity. He is purely selfless. He's purely good. Um, and, and I love these kind of naive characters that have almost a newborn's perspective on the world. They're seeing the world with, with fresh eyes. And, um, to me, you can sort of trace a lineage back to characters like, um, like Bambi, you know, some of the, or Dumbo, some of the original, uh, Disney characters where there's this innocence and this purity to them that is a big part of their appeal. So I was really drawn to that. Um, but really, and no character can, is is strong um in, in a vacuum you know and it's always about how they relate to the characters around them and so it's also important to um make sure that hero and baymax would work well as as a duo and so um we we thought that by having baymax be by having be very much restricted to robot rules like we didn't want to be a a, ro- a person in a robot so we wanted to be robotic and be very deliberate very methodical in the way that he made decisions and the way that he, that he moved. Um, so we, we figured the best contrast would be to have character, to have hero be someone who is very young, energetic, sort of manic. He's a really smart guy. He's got a thousand thoughts a second and, and to have all that energy next to Baymax, who is so deliberate and, and have these two characters working at very different paces. Uh, we knew that they would be great foils for each other and really set each other off. And so to me, it was about really examining and pushing the dynamic between them so that each made the other funnier, more interesting. See, now I heard that you guys actually know some robotic students and that Baymax at least was partially inspired by some students who were actually making sort of uh, inflatable robots. Is that true? This is uh, before my uh, time on the film, but Don had gone off and um, and gone to uh, Carnegie Mellon, I believe, and uh, and done a bunch of research. He'd gone to a lot of different robotic schools and things, but he had a real epiphany there where he was introduced to the idea of inflatable robotics. And they did say that it's something that would be 
um, have practical applications in the in the, the medical field because um, you know they are what they are. They're soft and they can't hurt people, and they're also not intimidating looking like a robots can sometimes be, and so people are very comfortable with them. And uh, and so that was really a light bulb went off for Don at that point. And when he came back from that research trip, um, he he talked about this idea of an inflatable robot. And uh, and for us that was a real hallelujah moment because. If you work at Disney Animation, and certainly if you work, you know, for John Lasseter, and you embark to to tell a story that features a robot, um, he's going to ask you to put up an image of every iconic robot that's ever existed in in movies or TV shows or anything, and uh, and then say, give me something new, and that is a great exercise. Uh, it was the same thing on both. He asked to put up all like, iconic dogs, um, and uh, and that forces you to not go with your first impulse. Or not just do a shorthand. It forces you to really go out and explore and find something original. And when Don came back from that trip and he had these sketches and these ideas, uh, we all realized that we'd found a very special version of a robot. And uh, and and that was that once we had that, the character design got resolved pretty quickly. And uh, so we've had that for for a long time actually. So when you're putting all those iconic robots up on the wall, which of them? Were your, were your favorites, or which ones did you think were the most interesting? <laughs> well, you know, there's always, I, every, I think we all have a soft spot in our heart for the Terminator, <laughs> you know, like, the, and uh, certainly all of the, um, you know, Robocop is, you know, it's one of my, the original one is, is, is a great movie, one of my favorites, and, and uh, but we looked at things like a lot of Japanese robots, you know, a, a lot of the, um, we'd, you'd have your Mecha Godzilla up there, but we'd also looked at the, you know, some of the original anime, and and uh and for me the um uh the one of the things that I was first turned on to as a kid was a show called Battle of the Planets, uh that was just repackaged Gotcha Man, which is a uh a really old anime series and some of the robot des- designs in that were really cool. Um so and you end up putting them all up, you know, like everything you could think of, you know, Johnny Five would be on the board, you know, I mean everything would be on there. And it just allows you to kind of really just exp- it makes you aware of all the things you'd forgotten about. Uh, and really forces you to, you know, stretch a little bit. Uh, how about the Iron Giant? Because my friends and I sort of saw this movie in in a way as a spiritual successor to the Iron Giant. Well, I mean, sure, that would have been up there, and uh, and yeah, I mean, just to be mentioned with that movie is a real compliment. You know, uh, it's it's one of my favorites. I was so moved emotionally. I, I mean, it's one of the you know you have those special um, experiences watching movies um, uh, that you remember. You remember the experience of watching it as much as you remember the the movie itself, and and I saw that movie with my family. Uh, I'd been living in the, in the States. I'm from Canada originally. I'd been living in the States at that point, and I was back home. And and um, and we went to see a matinee. And and I was just my brother and I just both just erupted in tears at the end. It was just such a, yeah, such a yeah. powerful movie that that whole moment where he flies up into the sky. I mean, I get I get emotional just just thinking about it. So um, I mean, yes, uh, thank you for even sort of <laughs> two movies in the same sentence. Well, and then the other robots in this movie that really struck me are the microbots, which I thought were just amazingly cool on screen. Could you talk about how you came up with that? And um, yeah, where this sure, came yeah, from? that was absolutely. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that was uh, another another uh, element in the story that was um, really inspired by the research. Um, they had sort of discovered um, the swarm technology, uh, where they were having um, tiny robots. Um, some of them um, were on the ground. Some of them could actually fly where it's this drone technology and they can all react to each other and they can kind of hold a pattern or form a pattern. And um, that was something that was a real springboard 
Um, and I mean, the, the, you really can't underestimate the importance of research in our process. Uh, when we once we pitch just a, a simple version of a story or an idea, um, we'll always be asked to go out and do lots of research. And the goal is to do research before you've really had your story take shape. Because if you don't, there's a danger that you will always try to twist the research to serve your story as opposed to really being inspired by the research and really le- letting the research actually inform the story. And, uh, and so that was one of the, the, the discoveries um, when we were um, doing the research. And, uh, and I mean, it's one of the things with a movie like this where we're trying to you know, have it feel like it's a, a pushed, slightly futuristic and fantastic world. At the same time, you want it to feel plausible and grounded and based in a real science. So we were drawing from um, cutting-edge technology. And, uh, but one of the dangers is that the actual technology moves so quickly that you have to work extra hard to make sure that you're going to be ahead of it when the movie actually comes out. And one of the things that we were pretty confident that we were not going to be, um, we were, they weren't to worry about is the, is the idea of telekinesis, because that's one of the things in the in the in the movie is that the the microbots are are controlled through telekinesis. And um, but actually, uh, probably about maybe maybe uh, ten months ago, maybe eight months ago, uh, I was driving my car and there's a radio, uh, there was a news report. Uh, about uh, people actually testing out uh, telekinesis, and they had one guy who was able to make another guy move his finger involuntarily. Um, they're both hooked up to a computer, and and uh, that was that just floored me, and it made me realize how fast technology actually moves, and uh, and how hard it is sometimes to stay ahead of it. I mean, speaking of rapidly advancing technology, I heard it was just a, a real technological challenge just to show the microbots on screen that it required all sorts of fancy computer equipment. Could you sure. talk about that? Well, probably, I mean, one of the biggest breakthroughs that was employed in this movie was um, uh, a Hyperion rendering system. Uh, that was a thing that was developed in-house. And, uh, and, and again, I am not uh, technologically very savvy myself, so I, I really wouldn't be able to get into a ton of detail about it. Um, but it was, uh, it was something that allowed for us to um, have the light that, uh, behave more authentically. Uh, the light in the in the movie would bounce. Light coming from a light source would bounce many more times in in our movie than any uh, movies that have come before. And uh, and and I think you feel it when you watch Big Hero Six. We're we're in a city with a lot of light sources, and you feel there's just something that feels more grounded and more real about it than anything you've ever seen before. Um, and so this new system allowed us to uh, set the movie in a city as dense as San Francisco. It's also something that um, you see front and center because our, one of our main characters, Baymax, is a vinyl robot and light is passing through him and bouncing around inside of him. And you feel the surface. It does feel like a, a soft vinyl surface that he's made out of. And I don't think we would have been able to, to capture that uh, with the technology that we had before. And so there was a decision that had to be made. Um, a few years ago as to whether we were we used this new technology where they hadn't quite yet, it was just, it was hot off the presses and, and it was still needed some development and they needed to make a decision, um, whether to use this, this Hyperion system. And, um, I think there's just something culturally here at Future Animation that I felt really sort of growing over the years, especially since, um, uh, John and Ed took over, um, I guess it was about eight years ago now. Um, where nobody wants to back away from a challenge. 
And, uh, and so they said, Let, let's go for it. And then they created this thing. And suddenly we were able to, to have this, this incredible world we wouldn't be able to have before. And then that pushes the story because we're all in-house. You know, we're all in one building together. And so then the creative side gets energized. And then they, they create something that's, that's bigger and better than, than anything we've ever tried before. And then that motivates the technology side. So it's very cyclical. And I think that's something that, that's pretty unique to this place. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned San Francisco, which is just this this wonderful setting that you guys came up with. Um, could you just talk about the process of developing that as a setting? Sure. Yeah. Um, it was uh, originally um, it came about because uh, the the original source material, Big Hero Six, um, was a Japanese superhero team, and so that's why that was in our heads. And uh, and at the same time, one of the things we love to do is to create new worlds. And uh, and so we wanted to be not on our Earth as we know it. And so that got, you know, the creative juices going. And it was actually, I think, Don Hall, the, the other director who um, first uh, conceived of this, this idea of this of San Francisco, this, this hybrid, this blending of East and West and San Francisco and Tokyo. And uh, and everyone got really excited about it. And, and to me, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's cool. It's different. Uh, but to, one of the things that I like the most about it is this, it's a visual indicator of something that's very important in the movie, which is this idea of synthesis, of a coming together of things. Because we knew that this movie was going to be blending sort of what Disney is and what Marvel is and what the superhero genre is and this, this coming together of East and West. And, and one of the things that I was, very mindful of is even genre wise, we had a melding of two things. We had a superhero origin story, but we also had a, a, a boy and his dog or a boy and his robot story. And we had to tell these stories without telling one at the expense of the other that needed to come together. And, uh, and so I like that, that San Francisco seems to sort of fit with those other ideas. I heard that the city was procedurally generated, so it was sort of randomized to to develop the whole city. Well, to some extent, and again, I I I would hesitate to say that I'm any kind of expert on these sorts of things, um, but I know that they started with the actual um, map of San Francisco, like all the streets, all the buildings are are accurate. Um, the layout of San Francisco, all the hills, all the topography, um, that is San Francisco. But then everything was heightened the way that we do. I think that the hills were made twice as tall and the buildings were made maybe two or three times as high. Um, and, uh, and then it was given this sort of um, an injection of a, of, a, of a Japanese aesthetic. And so to some extent, I'm, I suppose there'd be some random generation. But I mean, really, once you create the shots, you have to actually go in and, and really design the, the, the city. And, and you can't just let a computer do it. I mean, it really comes down to uh, our art direction, our production designer, um, Paul Felix and Scott Watsonabi and our incredible biz dev department to really figure out how to bring together these two aesthetics without it feeling just sort of slapped together. You know, it had to be integrated. And, uh, Scott Watsonabi, uh, was someone who was, um, a real, really essential to that. And he had actually lived in Tokyo and San Francisco and is just an incredible artist. So he was, he was a, he was a perfect person to sort of lead that. Uh, to come up with uh, an aesthetic that made it feel like we didn't just kind of shove things together. That it, 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 he did it, I think, a very thoughtful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I love the the establishing shot of the Golden Gate Bridge, where it kind of has this Japanese architectural stylings to it. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. I, I love it, too. And I'm, I mean, th those, are, those are the kind of things I, I can't take credit for. I'm just, uh, we, we definitely benefit from an amazing 
visual development crew and an amazing crew. And, and yeah, I myself look at that shot and, and my mouth's agape too. <laughs> I mean, are there any other details like that that you might not notice as a casual viewer, but working on the movie over these this long period of time, you, you kind of like caught your eye? Well, I mean, definitely one of the things that's nice about San Francisco, it is a very iconic city. So you've got things like, I, I really love the treatment of Coit Tower, um, the way it's sort of been given a new aesthetic, um, and the Transamerica building. You know, it's fun to sort of look at these things that you know, these very iconic things that you've seen a lot, and then see how they were treated. Um, there are also, you know, a few uh, Easter eggs, uh, things where we've placed uh, little little hidden things in there as well that people can look for in the city. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that to, to me that I just like seeing the the iconic things that have been then you know altered. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing about this movie that that my friends and I all really liked is how positive it is about science and being a nerd and stuff like that. Could you talk about like at what point in the process did did that idea come to you, or how did how did you include that in the story? Well, I think it came pretty naturally. I think it was something that was always going to be present. Um, one of the things you know to bear in mind is that. Um, working in animation, working at Disney Animation, this is sort of a, a mecca of nerddom in its own right. And a lot of us grew up um, in our, you know, spending a lot of time in our bedroom writing, writing stories and and drawing pictures, and sort of lost in our own in our own heads. And and uh, so uh, I definitely um, consider myself, uh, you know, a nerd and, and among nerds. And and so the idea of uh, celebrating nerddom certainly comes naturally, I guess. Um, I think that one of the things that we always knew is that we were going to have, um, we, we started from a point where we, we wanted to have Hero and his brother both be really intelligent. And we knew that Baymax was going to be designed and built by Hero's older brother, Tadashi. So we knew we were going to be dealing with really smart characters. And so it just naturally made the college setting uh, uh, right for us. And and we knew that we wanted to have our our heroes not be powered by um, by superpowers or magic or anything like that. It was going to be something that was that was using technology. And so we knew that was going to be fundamental to the story. And I do have to say that you know we've been getting lots of positive feedback. And one of the things that is most satisfying is when I hear just what you're talking about. Um, I hear people say that they were. Um, that they saw the movie with their kids and their kids were excited and inspired and told their, their parents they want to go to college and, uh, and making that cool, making being smart and curious cool. If we can have, you know, if, if we can be, contribute to that, then that's great. And, and if this movie in any way, you know, we essentially wanted to make a really sort of fun and emotionally engaging movie, but if it in any way inspires scientific curiosity, then I'm all for that. Did you guys have, I mean, you mentioned doing scientific research for the robots. Did you have to do any sort of research for the, the plasma lasers and the maglev stuff, any of the other uh, technology in the movie? Yeah, that was something. And again, I wasn't actually on those trips. Um, that was Don Hall really spearheading that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was something he was exposed to. Um, those are, again, you know, sort of cutting edge technologies and that, that we were excited about and, and especially Don was excited about and, and wanted to put in the film. Um, yeah, that was, he, he, he spent a lot of time uh, visiting campuses and, and seeing what people are into these days. So, I mean, which aspects of the film were you the most involved with? Um, well, basically the story. Um, I come from a story background. I've been at, at Disney Animation for uh, 20 years now in the story department, and I've been a, um, a storyboard artist and a director. And my focus has always been 
uh, the story. I, I spend most of my time in the story room or in the recording room or in editorial. Um, and it's, that's my, that's my passion. That's my love. And, and, uh, that's where I'll always want to be. So, I mean, you mentioned like growing up reading a lot of, uh, books and comics and things like that, like which, uh, particular books or comics got you into this, uh, uh, so passionately? Well, I, I mean, as far as comic books, the, I was, I tended to be drawn more to the artists. If a certain artist, um, uh, excited me, then I would pick it up. And, and I actually, Joe Kubert was, was one of my favorites. And I never, never completely convinced I'm pronouncing his, his name properly. Uh, but he did Sergeant Rock and, and, uh, I collected all those. And there was just something about his drawing style, the way he was able to, um, with a, with a minimum number of lines suggest so much. And, and uh he was able to suggest an entire forest which is a few well-placed brush strokes and and uh and to this day i think i aspire uh to draw uh, more like him um i don't draw like him but i but i uh, i'm trying to learn from him all the time um so so that was probably my favorite uh growing up and so how did you go from being a kid reading or you know looking at the art to actually working at disney oh well i think i was I think it was um, just almost predestined. It's it was my it's all I did as a kid was draw and and um, and write and I would create these stories and I would I'd make these worlds out of plasticine and and um, and I got into making motion capture not motion capture uh, stop motion. Uh, uh, <laughs> you had a motion capture rib in, in your past. <laughs> that would be a strange story. <laughs> um, uh, stop motion films when I was a kid. And, um, I made a bunch of them. And so I think it was just something that was in me. And, and, uh, but at the same time, I don't think I, I ever, I had quite worked out a, uh, a master plan as far as what, what I ought to do with my life. Um, it was really my mom that encouraged me. I, I studied fine arts in, up in Canada for a few years. And then it was my mom that encouraged me to, uh, go to Sheridan College up in Canada and study animation. And at that point, I, I, was interested in animation, but I wasn't that much of an expert on it. And it was there at Sheridan College that I really sort of discovered how much I loved it and, 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 uh, and really sort of made it my focus. And, um, I had been there, they had a, uh, an international program up there where I'd studied for two summers, um, up in Canada, in, in Ontario. And, um, then a Disney recruiter came up and looked at my portfolio and, and they um, asked me to come down to the Florida studio, the animation studio there, um, and uh, as, as an intern to study animation. And, and we studied lots of different um, fields. We, we studied story and animation and layout and uh, backgrounds and all sorts of things. Um, but I kept turning every assignment into a story assignment. And I think that that's where I really discovered. And I think Disney really figured out that that was my thing. That was um, what I was best at and, and what I was most passionate about. And so then they uh, sent me to California, and um, and I've been here ever since. I've, I, that was about 20 years ago. My first film uh, was Mulan. I worked in the story department on Mulan, and, and I've been here in this building. I'm, I'm speaking to you from the feature animation building. I've uh, been here for 20 years. Wow. So, I mean, when you say that, that, that you studied story, uh, like what, what would you say are some of the big lessons you've learned about doing a story for an animated film and in all those years you've been working on it? Wow. That, okay. That's, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that I've um, come to really value uh, is a really collaborative environment. 
um, I think that's one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, as far as um, constructing a great story, because it's a it's a it's a small team of us uh, that makes uh, these stories. Um, usually, a director or two, a writer or two, um, and then uh, a team of story artists, maybe you know six to ten story artists. And and you also have an entire crew that will see these internal screenings and give you their feedback and give you their thoughts and and I think that if you can foster um, an environment that is collaborative, where people feel comfortable volunteering their ideas and even comfortable disagreeing with each other or disagreeing with me, um, that's when you really start cooking, you know. And so that's one of the things that I've come to really. Um, uh, place great amount of, of importance on. And I think that a lot of people aspire to a collaborative environment, but it, in a lot of ways it fights human nature because you, it's nice to just be reaffirmed all the time and be told that you're, you're brilliant and, and every idea you have is great and, and uh, don't change a thing. That, that feels really great. Um, but ultimately it's not going to uh, allow the movie to get better. And there's, I think there's a tendency when I first started to think that every idea um, I had was, I had, I had a lot of confidence, you know, uh, I know story, I know what works and what doesn't work. And I was probably, you know, um, pretty headstrong and, and pretty, uh, I, I maybe saw things in more black and white and I knew I was right all the time. And then one of the things you come to, to accept or understand over the years is that, you know, even when you're absolutely certain that you're right, sometimes you're wrong. So are, are there any specific instances when you were just absolutely sure you were right and then you later decided that you were wrong that stick in your mind? Yeah, you know, um, one of the, there was a scene where uh, Hero and Baymax fly through the city together. Uh, we call it scene first flight. And it's really dynamic and, and, and really cinematic. And it's really let a lot of our departments kind of show their stuff in that scene, the lighting and the layout and everything is just fantastic. And, um, and then after that, there's in the movie, a very, a very quiet scene between Hero and Baymax. Um, initially in the reels, that scene didn't just have Hero and Baymax on top of the wind turbine. Uh, it had the entire team, uh, all six of the big Hero Six. And it was more of a comedic beat. You know, we wanted to get the, the team more involved in that part of the movie. And to me, that I, I was convinced that was the right thing to do. Um, I, I, I felt we needed to hear the team's voices again and get them more engaged. And, and uh, structurally, it seemed very sound to me. Uh, but we, when we put the whole movie up, you just felt there was something missing from Hero and Baymax's relationship. And so at that point, we looked at that scene again and realized it would be much stronger and serve the movie much better if it was a much quieter and sweeter scene just between Hero and Baymax. And, and that was a pretty late change um, in our schedule. And it ended up being huge. I think it paid huge dividends. I think it's the, it's the scene in the movie where we realize how deeply Hero and Baymax care about each other. I think it's the point where we invest in those characters. Uh, as a duo, the audience invests in those characters uh, in a way they hadn't to that point. And, uh, and so I, I realized that I, I was sure this scene, this scene needed to be one thing. It needed to be fun, comedic, and, and involve the whole gang. Came to realize, actually, it needed to be a sweeter, quieter scene that really was about advancing the relationship between Hero and Baymax. So that, that's one that comes offhand, but it's, it's a constant process of, of um, stating your point of view 
um, and then being able to be flexible. All right, I have just a couple of random questions I wanted to get to. So which of the characters in the movie do you identify with the most? <laughs> okay, well, I think there's <laughs> uh, being a, uh, a fan of, you know, superhero movies and, and science fiction and, and, uh, and just movies in general. Certainly, there's there's some Fred in me, and you know, Fred in a lot of us here at, at Future Animation. His awareness of the the tropes of the genre or something that 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 I think is always kind of fun. Um, and uh, so there's there's certainly some 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 Fred in me, and and uh, and Don. A lot of people here in the building. Um, I think there's also a certain goofiness in Honey Lemon that that uh, I, I I probably possess. And uh, and but I, I suppose I aspire to be as as cool as Gogo, um, but I don't think I'm I'm nearly there. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. It's it. Probably, I probably I might give a different answer on a, on a different day. I, I I suppose I would also aspire to be as good and selfless as Baymax, but I suppose that's impossible for us humans. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Fred's uh, technique for stretching out his underwear use. Uh, who came up with that? <laughs> that's funny because uh, you know because we spend years in these things we. Uh, debate and uh, we debate everything and we go into the minutia and that line and, and his exact methodology uh, actually did evolve. I can't remember what it was. There was a different order of events <laughs> for his front back inside out and all that. Um, I think we had written a few different versions of it. Um, at one point, uh, TJ Miller, who plays Fred, uh, he's, he's a master ad libber and he'd come up with some of his own versions of it. Um, I remember at one point, even John Lasseter, um, who goes from, you know, being engaged on a macro level to a very uh, micro level at times, uh, gave his point of view on what he thought the line should be. Uh, so it did evolve quite a bit. And uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so I, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly when we landed it, but, but it certainly went through some growing pains. <laughs> Okay, and then have uh, have any other reactions that you've gotten from fans or whatever to the movie uh, been particularly interesting or memorable or stuck in your head? Well, the the one that that I didn't maybe um, that I especially pre- appreciate is one that I mentioned, just the idea that that people are talking about the fact that it, it's making nerds and especially science and technology cool. Uh, I think there's something that 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 I really um, was was taken aback by. Um, for me, just the, the being able to sit with an audience, um, after the, you know, the years of working on the film and, and, and it involves very late nights and working on weekends and a lot of sacrifice and missing time with my kids and all that stuff. Um, and everybody on the crew makes huge sacrifices. Um, they're all very dedicated professional people and they, they work so hard and they're so committed to making something great. And, uh, and so, uh, it's, it, you know, it can be very, very stressful at times. Um, but once the movie was finished and I got to go see it in a proper theater with a proper audience, uh, to hear people laughing and especially to have people get, uh, as emotionally engaged as, as they were. And I, you know, you hear the, sn- the sniffling and things like that. It is so gratifying and it, and it makes the whole journey worthwhile. And I've, I've seen it a few times now in a proper theater and, and all three times there was applause at the end. And, and it's so, it means so much. It basically, basically means everything to, to us that, that the audience 
um, react that way to the movie because this is our lives. You know, this is what we've dedicated ourselves to and our creative energy to is making these movies. And, uh, and so, um, it's incredibly gratifying to get that kind of reaction. And to me, it is really high stakes because when you embark on making one of these films, you know, it's just, it's just a few people. Um, and, uh, but as you move forward in the production, you start to involve, as I said, more and more people. And then you have hundreds of people investing all of their creative energy and all of their time uh, into this one thing. And that's where the stakes get very high to me. You know, it, it, it cannot be a bad movie. It cannot be an okay movie. It has to be a great movie. Uh, or else we haven't done our job as a director and, a, and as a story person. Um, it has to be great. And so that, and that's a very motivating thing to me. You know, I, I think about the crew and, and their sacrifices that they're making and, and they, they deserve a great film. And so at the end of the journey, when you get to see the, the movie with a, with a, a real audience and, and get that reaction, that's when you know that you've done your job. And how about the the Stan Lee cameo at the end? Was that uh, was that something you always planned to do? Is that something that developed at some point in the process? <laughs> well, okay, um, I, I guess at this point we did try to sort of keep that thing under wraps, actually. And at this point, I think it, the cat's out of the bag. Um, the, uh, the what happened was um, we were making this very ambitious film. You know, it's huge in scope. The sets are really uh, massive, and, and there's a lot of characters. And this is a challenging story to tell. And so we, we kept thinking, Don and I both said, boy, it'd be great to have some kind of end credit button, but I don't know if we have the bandwidth for it. I don't know if we have the time or the crew to be able to do that. And we were just trying to work on the movie itself and make sure that it was, it was where it needed to be. And so we would kind of put it off and put it off. And, uh, I remember, uh, Don and I both had the same experience, uh, opening weekend when we went to see guardians of the galaxy, um, where the movie ended and nobody budged <laughs> everybody knew to just sit and wait and uh and don and i both <laughs> that monday morning we basically ran towards each other and we we're like we got a problem because yes it's a disney film but everyone knows there's a marvel connection so what if people sit and wait through the credits and at the end of it there's nothing and then the last emotion they would they would experience would be disappointment and and we just thought we can't let that happen and so, but it, this was very late stages of the production. And so we knew we had to come up with something quickly. So I, uh, I went off and I wrote the, I wrote the, <laughs> the button and I storyboarded it very, uh, roughly. And I, uh, and I laid it out on my floor in my office and, and Don is in the next office over and I called him over and I pitched it to him and, uh, and he, and he laughed and, and he's really into it. Uh, and, but, but I knew, um, the, a challenge was going to be just the logistics of it. You know, we, we were, we were running out of time. Uh, the crew was all very busy. How are we going to be able to do this? Um, and it would be, you know, make it more expensive and all the rest of it. But there was something, <laughs> something great happened where when I was pitching, um, the, the button, uh, our, our producer, Roy Conley walked in just when we got to sort of the, the big joke of, of the button. And, uh, and Roy bust out laughing and I knew at that point that we had, that it was going to happen because, you know, Roy is the money man. He's the ultimate money man of the movie. And, uh, and I knew he was into it and he's someone, you know, I call him money man, but he puts the movie first and the creative first and he knew it was a good idea and he knew it was good for the movie. And so at that point I knew we were going to do it. And, uh, and, but one of the things that we did 
and a lot of people don't know this, um, we actually kept that button a secret from our own crew, and, uh, and which is nearly impossible at Disney because it's difficult to keep a secret here at Disney Feature Animation. Um, and, and all the computers are linked up so people can kind of look at each other's work sometimes. You can kind of snoop around. And um, so um, our uh, visual effects supervisor, Kyle Odermatt, he actually went in and created a, a little secret area <laughs> where other people wouldn't know that it was hiding. And we, we brought in this skeleton crew, representatives from each of the departments, and we let them in on the fact that we were going to create this button. So we had a representative or a few from lighting, a few from animation, a few from layout. Uh, but the vast majority of the crew didn't know what was happening. And so we had, you know, we had these secret meetings with secret knocks behind closed doors where we were designing the Stanley character and we were, um, you know, building the model and, 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 and animating him and all this stuff. And, uh, and so when we had our, our rap party where we present the film finished in its entirety for the first time to our crew, um, they didn't know about it. And, uh, and so we screened the movie and then we got to the credits and then right when it goes to black, the crew started standing up and then that first shot comes on of Fred's mansion. And I heard this incredible gasp, you know, echo through this, this theater. And I heard a lot of people say, what is this? And they all sat down and watched this thing. And, and I knew we'd actually kept the secret. And that was one of the most thrilling moments of the, of the entire production. Um, and, uh, and so that was really cool. And of course, for me personally, being able to actually, if, if only briefly direct Stan Lee, uh, was, was sort of, um, uh, a life goal. I didn't even sort of dare to have, uh, that was pretty awesome. And, uh, <laughs> the, one of the things that, um, that people don't know is that because we were, um, keeping it a secret from our crew, we didn't record Stanley in our building. We have a recording room here, but we, um, we, we went to a, a, another studio to record to keep it on the down low. And so there we were. Um, and, but when we got there, the, they had booked it on a, on a second floor studio and there were no elevators. So we knew that Stanley was going to have to walk up this long flight of stairs. And none of us had ever met Stanley, but we knew he was in his 90s, I think he's 91. And, uh, so we didn't know how frail he would be. And so the whole time we're waiting for him, we're like, okay, when we go up the stairs, we're going to position ourselves behind him. So if he falls, we can catch him. And, uh, and, and we said, we can't, we cannot be responsible for killing Stanley <laughs> because then we would be marked men. And, uh, and so we were very nervous about it, but I got to say when the car rolled up, and out popped Stan Lee. He was, <laughs> he was anything but. I mean, he was, he was full of energy. He was funny. He had the voice. He had the persona. You know, he had the, he, he was, he, he, he was amazing. And, uh, so there was, <laughs> he took those stairs like a champion and he was everything you wanted to be. And all our, our fears were, were dashed. And, uh, and, and so then being able to, um, record with him was just such a thrill and he was such a good guy. And, and, uh, uh, so yeah, that was, that was one of the more fun, that was, that was the icing on the cake of making the movie, I would say. Hmm. So is that button canon as, uh, going forward? If there's a sequel, will Stan Lee appear as, uh, one of the heroes? <laughs> well, you know, we, it certainly feels like we're setting something up there. We, um, we were just thinking about a funny button and, um, and, you know, we just finished the movie not that long ago. And, and Don and I are in a place where we're just getting some distance from the film and, and, and looking forward to some vacation soon. 
And I think it is important to kind of step away and <laughs> find that the adrenaline sort of die down a little bit and do some traveling, do some reading, sort of see what kind of things are, are exciting you these days and, and what you're feeling connected to and, and not race back into something, you know? And so we've, we've had no discussion at all about a sequel. Um, it's something that may or may not happen someday. Uh, we, we have no ideas, uh, as far as the sequel goes. Um, we do, we, it is a, a funny thing that happens when you are in these story rooms and, and then working with the animators, these characters start to become very real to us. You know, we start to feel like we, we know how they would behave in any situation, not just in, in the scenes of this story. Um, and you feel connected to them. And, and when they, when the movie is released and, it's almost like you, you feel like a proud parent and, and you're like, and your kids are going off to college and they're going to live lives without you and be exposed to new people. And, and so you really grow to love them. And so the idea of working with them again someday certainly has its appeal. Um, but it's not something that we're actively thinking about right now. I mean, is there anything else you want to say about upcoming projects or anything? I, I heard maybe you're doing a Philip K. Dick thing that you may or may not be able to talk about. Is there just anything that you want to talk about coming up? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not actually. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not. I think I know what you're referring to, but I'm, I'm not working on that show. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, the, right now, I, I get like I said, I'm trying to make a real point of. I mean, I, at home, I've always got my little, my little piles of ideas and and things and and. Um, and and characters and genres that I'm excited about that are just are very loosely formed. Um, but I'm trying to make a real point of, of not just racing back into something. I think it is important to kind of step away uh, for whatever amount of time you need to kind of really figure out where you're at and, and what in your life, you know, what are the things that speak to you are the things you're excited about um, and, uh, and then reengage. So that's, that's what I'll be doing in, in the sort of coming months. All right, great. So unfortunately, we're all out of time. So I think we're going to need to wrap things up there. Well, thank you very much. This has been fun. Yeah, so we've been speaking with Chris Williams. He's the co-director of Big Hero 6. So uh, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Chris Williams for joining us on the show. This episode was made possible thanks to support from listeners such as R. Chris Four, John Marshall, Scott Osterling, and Leonid Levchenko. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And if you live in the New York area, you should come out and meet Stephen Gould, our guest from episode 116. He'll be appearing at the KGB Bar on December 17th alongside Raj Ankana, who's appeared on four of our shows, most recently in episode 109. To learn more, follow Geeks Guide NYC on Twitter. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it... Tell no one. Thank you for listening.